This is a Sunday that uh, you all have been praying for and uh, eagerly waiting uh, to meet our guest and our candidate for senior pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church. It's just a very great delight for me to uh, be able to present to the congregation uh, Dr. John Piper and uh, his family, uh, Noel, and uh, two of the boys are here in the front. I'm just going to ask her to stand for a moment so we can all see uh, who Noel Piper is. Thank you very much. John Piper comes to us as a uh, very effective uh, uh, minister of education, teaching in the classroom at uh, Bethel College uh, in the field of New Testament, an ordained minister, uh, a churchman, and we're just so pleased to have him as our guest in the pulpit this morning. And this evening, he will also be bringing us a personal testimony. And it's just uh, a very great delight for me to come to this moment and uh, uh, introduce to you our speaker of the morning, uh, John Piper. Welcome, John. Thank you, Marvin. The life of any church and any Christian can be described or summarized like this. Paul planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. They're going to give me ten minutes tonight to tell you about the planter and the waterers in my life. And those of you who would like to hear, I'm eager to tell you about those. But this morning, there are more people here probably than there will be tonight. And so I want to talk about the most important thing, God. Let's pray. Almighty God and merciful Heavenly Father, there is no privilege in which we delight more than to hear you speak and to see you act on our behalf. And my prayer as we begin now this message is that both of those might happen. In Jesus' name, amen. As you know, there's a city in northern Greece called Philippi. Paul, on his second missionary journey, founded a church there, a church that he came to love very, very much. It's evident from his letter. And 12 years later, he was in jail in Rome on trial for his life. And in those intervening 12 years, this church had more than any other church supported Paul in his ministry financially. And they loved him. He was their apostle, and they held him in high esteem. And when they found out that he was on trial for his life, they didn't dissociate with him to save their necks. Instead, they aligned themselves with him and they sent off Epaphroditus with more gifts to support him. But Epaphroditus also brings bad news to Paul there in Rome. He says to Paul that back there in the church, there are enemies of the cross who are threatening the faith of the believers. And now we hear, Paul, that you're in prison 
and on trial for your very life, and they don't know if you'll ever come back to help, and they're very distraught. If the enemies attack at home and the apostle dies in Rome, what's going to happen to the gospel? And so Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, and I want you to look at some texts with me. He writes to encourage them, and he tells them that the gospel of Christ is far too great to depend on his fate for its success. Here's what he says in chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have been made confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. In other words, don't fret about the gospel. Don't worry about me. What really matters is not whether I get out of jail or even whether I live. What matters is that Christ goes on being preached. So keep your love straight, Philippians. Not Paul, but Christ must go on being honored, and in that I rejoice. Now, the text that I really want us to focus on together is Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 26. That comes right after the section in which Paul assures them that even though there are people out there using the gospel to rub salt into Paul's wounds, they are unwittingly making him happy because what makes Paul happy is when Christ is preached. I'm going to read the text again that Marvin read. Chapter 1, verse 19 following. We're going to look at it in some detail. Yes, and I shall rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance or my salvation, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I shall not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ might be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If it is to be life in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. So that on account of your exaltation in Christ Jesus, your exaltation might abound because of my coming to you. Now, Paul has one main passion in life, doesn't he? It seems clear from this text that in everything, absolutely everything he does, Christ might be magnified, exalted, honored, shown to be magnificent. Now. He has a very strange way of stressing this. Look at verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I might not be shamed in anything. Now, let's just stop right there a minute. Shame is that horrible sense 
of guilt or failure when you just don't measure up in front of the people whose approval you want very much. It's what that little kid feels in the Christmas program when he forgets his lines and there's that unending time, nobody says anything, and his heart is thundering so loud in his chest he thinks it's going to explode and the tears start to roll down his face and the little kids in the front start to twitter brutally. We know what shame is. Or it's when the President of the United States has to admit that the tapes have been found and played and all the foul language and deceit is clear for the whole nation to look at and he stands publicly disgraced. We know what shame is, but what's the opposite of shame? What's the alternative to being put to shame? It's remembering the lines and hearing the applause, right? It's governing well and getting reelected. The opposite of being shamed is being honored, usually. But Paul was a very unusual person, wasn't he? Christians ought to be very unusual people. For Paul, the opposite of shame was not that I might be shamed, but that Christ might be honored. It is my eager expectation and hope that I might in nothing be put to shame, but with all boldness, Christ might be magnified in my body. What you love determines what you will feel shame about. If you love for men to think highly of you, you will feel horrible shame when they don't. If you love for men to think highly of Christ, you will feel shame when they belittle him on your account. But Paul loved Christ. He loved Christ like very few people have ever loved him. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Whenever something is of tremendous value to you, whenever you cherish something because of its uniqueness or its power or its beauty, there is an inevitable longing that you draw others' attention to it so that they can share your high regard for it. And that's why Paul's all-consuming goal in life was that people magnify Christ because Christ was of infinite value to Paul. He wanted other people very much to appreciate and magnify Christ with him. That's what it means to magnify Christ, to show the magnitude of his value. But now, in a moment of weakness, the Philippian church might have said, yes, Paul, right. Christ is of great value to you now. You enjoy a very intimate fellowship with him. He gives you a fruitful ministry. He rescues you from shipwreck. But, Paul, there's a sword hanging over your head. There's a death sentence awaiting you. Where's the value of Christ now? And so Paul adds in verse 20, My confidence is that Christ will be magnified in my body, 
whether by life or by death. Death is a threat to the degree that it frustrates our goals, our greatest goals. Death is fearful to the degree that it threatens to rob you of what you value most. But Paul valued Christ most. And he looked at death and he didn't see it as a frustration. He saw it as an occasion for the fulfillment of his highest value that Christ might be magnified. Life and death, they seem like such opposites. They seem so contradictory. They seem like enemies. But in Paul's mind, somehow there's this unity. So that whether by life or by death, Christ would be magnified. In other words, the greatest longing he had would be fulfilled in both. And so, in a sense, it was a matter of indifference to him, which the Lord would give him. Then in verse 21, I think what Paul does is is give us a very packed summary statement of how it is that he can be so confident that Christ is going to be magnified whether he lives or whether he dies. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in verses 22 to 26, he unpacks this summary statement. And that's what we want to follow him and let him do. Let's take the two halves of verse 21 and let them be the guidelines that lead us through 22 to 26. First, for me to die is gain. Have you ever wondered, like I have, whether Paul, on that visit to Jerusalem that he tells us about in Galatians, where he had about 15 days with Peter, maybe the only contact he had, except perhaps at a conference later, which we'll mention in a minute. Very short contact. No doubt they talked about Jesus a lot. I wonder if Peter told Paul about that experience he had with the risen Lord recorded for us in in John 21. You remember what, what Jesus did there to Peter? He asked him if he loved him, and Peter stressed that he did love him, and Jesus said, feed my sheep. But then near the end of that illustration, Jesus says this to Peter. When you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. But when you are old... You're going to stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you don't want to go. And John adds, this he said to show by what death he would glorify God. There's no difference between glorifying God in your death and magnifying Christ in your death. And I don't doubt that later on when those two men took the right hand of fellowship and went their separate ways, the apostle to the Jews and the apostle to the Gentiles. That firm handshake and the meeting of those eyes communicated one thing. Brother, we will magnify Christ to death. I hunger for that kind of fellowship. But how? How are we going to magnify Christ in death? Or to put it another way, how can we die 
so that in our dying, the value, the magnitude of the value of Christ will be visible. Paul's answer is this. If you believe in your heart, if you really believe that to die is gain, you will magnify Christ in your dying. He says in verse 23, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That is an amazing statement. Better? Better than all those friends at high school? Better than falling in love with Noel? Better than hugging to yourself three beautiful sons? Better than promotion in the company? Better than a well deserve retirement and grandchildren? Yes. Yes, 10,000 times better as far as Paul was concerned. And if I didn't believe it, how could I ever aspire to the office of pastorate? Not to mention in a church where 107 people are over 80 years old and another 171 are over the age of 65. If I didn't believe that I could say to every gray-haired believer in this church, the best is yet to come, I wouldn't budge. But it's true, and I do believe it. I don't mean a fat pension and a luxury condominium either. I mean Christ, and you all know that. We will magnify Christ in our dying precisely to the degree that we believe that fellowship with him in heaven is more to be preferred than any person or anything in this earth. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. When we come to the hour when everything will be taken from us but Christ, we will magnify him by saying, in Christ I have everything and more. But most of us now, turning to the second half of verse 21, most of us have some years to live. And even the oldest among us have to ask the question, how shall I magnify Christ in my body this afternoon? Tonight, at my work this week. So Paul says, to me to live is Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? To live is Christ. The explanation begins in verse 22. If it is to be life in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That's a strange way to explain for me to live is Christ. To me to live is Christ is substituted by for me to live is fruitful labor. But he goes a step farther in verses 24 to 26 to give us the answer of how it is that fruitful labor and living being Christ are almost one and the same thing. Verse 22, he said, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And now in verse 24, 
to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. In other words, the fruitful labor that Paul lives for is not labor merely for his sake, but labor that is very, very needful for the church at Philippi. So the phrase, for me to live is Christ, now becomes, for me to live is very fruitful labor for your sakes. And then comes verse 25, and he defines what the fruit is. I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. Now we can see the steps in Paul's thinking. First, for me to live is Christ. That's explained first then by saying, for me to live is to be dedicated to fruitful labor. Then he says, for me to be dedicated to fruitful labor is for your sake. And then finally he defines the fruit, what is to come about in their lives as the advancement and the joy of faith. The increase of your faith and its overflow with joy. I wonder if it's clear to you why it is that in Paul's thinking, to live as Christ is virtually the same as to live is to be devoted to your joy of faith. I think I can show you, I'm going to try, why those two statements are virtually synonymous. But we need a definition of faith to show that and, and see if you accept this one. I think it's New Testament. Faith is the confidence or trust that we put in a person who has given us cause to think that he's reliable and is able and willing to help us in our need. And that's it. The confidence or trust you put in a person who's given good evidence for us to think that he is reliable and willing and able to help us. Now, if that's a good definition of faith, I think we can find out why it is that to say for me to live is Christ and for me to live is for your joy of faith are the same thing. Notice what that definition implies about the person trusted. Pretend like you are downtown Minneapolis about five o'clock in the afternoon and you're walking to the bus stop, say, and this man runs up to you with a sack of money, rushes up, shoves it into your hand and says, would you deposit that in F&M for me? I got to go. Takes off. And you say, hey, wait a minute. Who are you? And he says, well, don't worry about such things. And you say, what? How can you trust me? You don't even know me. He says, oh, I don't care. I don't care about that. I think you'll do it. Go ahead. Put it in the bank. And he disappears into the crowd. Has that man paid you a compliment? I don't think he has. He's crazy. <laughs> Foolish action never compliments anybody. But picture this. Same scene. You're walking down, and here comes this guy. New guy. Shoves this bag of money into your hand. Starts to take off and says, Would you deposit that for me? I don't have time. And you say... Wait a minute, how can you trust me with this money? You don't even know me. He says, I know you. You don't know me, but I know you. I've watched you from a distance. I've seen how you do your business. I've watched how you handle your family. I've asked ten people who know you well what they think, and they vouch for you 100%. You'll do it. Phew, he's gone. 
and you stand there holding this money with a tremendous sense of obligation, and how do you feel? You know how you feel? Magnified. Honored. Tremendously honored. Because he's trusted you on good evidence. And I think that's the way it is with Jesus. Now, the sequence of thought in verse 20 goes like this. Follow. My eager expectation and hope is that my life might magnify Christ. Summary statement. For me to live is Christ. Next explanation. For me to live is fruitful labor. Next explanation. My fruitful labor is the advancement and joy of your faith. And now you can see the arch back to verse 21. For me to live is Christ. And for me to live is for your faith means this. For me to live is your advancement of faith is to kindle in you that one attitude which alone magnifies Christ most, namely trust. So to live for their faith and to live for Christ alone are the same thing. It's the only way we can live for Christ is to live by and for faith in Christ. For me to live is Christ-magnifying faith, you might say. But that's not all. We left out a, a word, the word joy, verse 25. I will continue with you for your joy. Now, this little phrase, uh, which in the, most of the translations is uh, joy in faith or from faith, literally it's just joy of faith. And I think that means for Paul that when we have faith, we will have joy. They belong together. He just can't any more conceive of faith without love than he can conceive of springtime without flowers. He says, you remember in Romans 15, 13, he prays for the church. Oh, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in Believing. In other words, believing is the means to joy. Joy comes from a confident trust in Christ and his promises. He also said to the Corinthians uh, the same thing. He described his ministry like this in 2 Corinthians 1, 24. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy just replaces one word with the other. Because for Paul, they are virtually interchangeable. You can't have the one without the other. Joy comes from a confident, hopeful trust in the promises of God, which are, yes, in Christ Jesus because of his death and resurrection, which is why probably Paul ends up the text in verse 26 with a reference to glorying in or boasting in Christ. Now, when we ask, finally, how it is that for me to live is Christ and for me to live is your joy, it also should make sense that those are virtually the same statement. Because Paul only has one joy in mind here, joy in Christ, joy that comes from the bounty 
of Christ's provision and his promises. And if we delight in the Christ who is so bountiful, is not our joy a magnifying of Christ? When you're happy about something, you magnify that thing. So that not only faith, but the fruit of faith in joy magnifies Christ tremendously. Now, let's turn in this final moment to some implications of this unit for our situation. And since I'm the one on trial here today, I'll apply it to myself and leave you to apply it to yourself. Right now in my own life, uh, I stand on the brink of a of a professional change. I really love my job at Bethel College. It is very rewarding. And uh, when I see students up there and down there that are in my class right now in 1 Corinthians, it makes me very glad. Um, One of the ways God has said to me, move, Piper, and I'm going to move, whether to this church or another one, I believe, is this. When I read Philippians 1, 19 to 26, there is in me a tremendous longing. Last October, it became an irresistible longing to be an instrument in God's hands to fulfill these goals in a local church. In other words, at this point in my life, I say, and I believe that God is saying to me, the potential piper for magnifying me is greater now in the pastorate than in the professorship. That's why the move. When I become a pastor, I'm going to have one all-encompassing goal, or simple goal, that in nothing I might be ashamed, but that in everything I might magnify Christ, whether by life or by death. And to that end, I aim at three things. First, I will aim to love Christ with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my strength. Because when I die in the midst of my ministry and say farewell to a beloved flock and a cherished family, I want to be able to believe that it is gain. And in my dying to bear witness to a church that Christ is great indeed and worthy of all our trust. Second, while I live and minister, my goal is going to be to make the people glad in God. Woe to the pastor who uses his position to hammer year after year in chiseling out a hard, sour people. He's forgotten his calling. I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your advancement and joy of faith. Third, since joy comes from faith and faith comes from hearing, And hearing through the word of God, it will have to be my main goal, my tremendously fulfilling and joyful goal to feed that flock the word of God every week, week in, week out. 
And I will pray that Jesus' words become fulfilled in my words. The banner over every sermon I preach. My words I have spoken to you in order that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full.